And so I took some classes at ASU and started doing research in behavioral neuroscience with the intention of being like, I want to get into medical school. I know that I need to do research. But through this, I discovered this a whole other side of science that I never really knew existed. So kind of having the bridge between like the science that I learned in the classroom, but also like direct application to, you know, uh, the, the brain. It was really neat for me to have. From the cubicle to the lab, the studio to the war room, climbing the corporate ladder or joining a scrappy startup, experience a day in the life of the jobs you want. This is the Experience a Day in the Life podcast. We interview professionals, entrepreneurs, and recent grads about what a day is actually like on the job, hour by hour, or as we like to call it, they're a diddle, spelled A-D-I-T-L, which stands for a day in the life. This podcast will inspire you to gain experience beyond the classroom and launch a career of your own. We're your hosts, Chris DeBeau and Matt Poe. Welcome to part two in the two-part Life in the Lab series. In part one, we went through hour by hour, day in Dr. Ta Wynn's life as a postdoc neuroscientist. In this episode, we'll take you through Ta's career journey so you know what skills and experiences are necessary to land a job as a neuroscientist. Her story will clear up some things about navigating academia and highlight skills that you'll definitely want to know about before you make this important investment into your career. Let's learn how she did it so you can too. Ta went to the University of Arizona and studied molecular and cellular biology with the hopes of getting into medical school. I spent the majority of my formative years thinking that I wanted to go into medicine. I always wanted to be a doctor and that was my plan even upon graduating college, but I didn't get in after, I don't, I don't even know if I applied my senior year of college, but you know, getting into medical school these days is very competitive. It, it requires like stellar undergraduate grades, great MCAT score, tons of research, volunteer work and things like that. And you know, a lot of things have to align. And so when I graduated college, I knew that I had to, you know, expand my portfolio, get some more coursework under my belt and start doing research, but I didn't, which I didn't really do in college. She might not have gotten the research experience she needed for med school during undergrad, but did partake in her passion for teaching as a math and science tutor for high school students. I have always loved teaching for like a very long time and especially the subjects that I loved the most. I really loved to like if someone was struggling with it, I wanted to like help them through it just because I loved like chemistry so much that if I saw you struggling with chemistry, I'd really want to see if I could be the one to Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so when I was in college, I sought a tutoring position and worked for a tutoring club where I tutored like high school students in math and science. How much did you learn like just by teaching people? Well, I learned that I didn't know some things that <laughs> I thought I knew. I had to, I tutored this student in AP chemistry and, and even after taking like a couple of semesters in chemistry in college, I was like, whoa, this, this is still a little bit above my head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> After earning her bachelor's degree, she moved back home and took classes to gear up for medical school. It was then when she had her light bulb moment and pivoted her career path. And so I took some classes at ASU and started doing research in behavioral neuroscience with the intention of being like, I want to get into medical school. I know that I need to do research. But through this, I discovered this a whole other side of science that I never really knew existed. And I think part of that was because it was an area of research that really piqued my interest, I guess, because I, in retrospect, I did spend a summer in a biochemistry lab, which was great, but, you know, it was studying photosynthesis, which I wasn't 
really that interested in. So kind of having the bridge between like the science that I learned in the classroom, but also like direct application to, you know, the brain, it was really neat for me to have. Speaking of experience, Tuz, one of many pieces of advice to pre-med students is take your research requirement seriously. I totally support pre-med students that are going to do research, but I always say that that if you really love science, that you should really love research too. And you don't have to spend your life doing it. I totally get people that do it, but you know, you should take it seriously and see this side that is really enriching and can enrich what you learn in the classroom that's different than the what you learn in medical school, you know. Did you know that you didn't need your master's to get your PhD? I certainly didn't. Taz says if you want to get into a PhD program for neuroscience, there's a job that can get you the experience you need and you won't have to shell out hundreds of thousands of dollars for your master's. There is some merit to the master's, right? There is additional coursework and there is a research experience, but the major downfall about it is that it's paid out of pocket. Unless you're lucky and you can get some kind of scholarship, which does exist, but not they're not like very ubiquitous. Yeah. yeah. So for the person who is planning to get a PhD, my major recommendation always is to get a technician job. The technician job will get you the research experience that you need. It's paid. And if you're at a university, oftentimes they'll give you like 12 credits that you can take as being a university employee. So the technician is someone that is going to do like some of the ancillary lab work. It will start with the like lower responsibility things like doing the dishes for the lab, which, you know, like a lot of tedious things that need to be done. You can do ordering, which also the lab manager does. But slowly, if you show your worth, then they'll give you maybe a little side project that the lab has been meaning to do to give you kind of your own experience and own project, which is really important to have when you're trying to enter like the land of research. Get your foot in the door. Exactly. How How do students go about getting those jobs? Is it just... Are they on job boards or? Sometimes you just have to cold email tons of labs and just very short. So the kind of the PIs or the professors are notorious for not fully reading emails. I think as many of us are, but kind of the key is to write one or two sentences. I'm so-and-so, this is my experience. Are you looking for this? And in fact, that was like similar to the email that I sent when I was trying to find a postdoc. You know, the short and sweet are really good. Typically, if someone's looking for a technician or a lab manager, they'll see that and want to email immediately. So, and, and then I guess the point is, is that once you have the technician job, you get the research experience. That's what you really need to get into a PhD program and PhD programs are fully paid most of the time in STEM. Not, not fully paid a lot, but they are fully paid. Yeah. Okay. So we know now that most master's programs will make you pay out of pocket and PhD programs are mostly funded, but there's so much work that goes into getting your PhD that I bet you're wondering how she can afford to like... (laughs) I don't know, live? Ta told us that most universities give out stipends based off the cost of living of the state the university's in. Ta got a stipend of $32,000 a year for being in New York City. Depending on the number of hours that you work, you know, like, the the hourly rate is not great. But you're like building equity in your your knowledge. Exactly. And And then if you go to some place like Columbia or Cornell, you you have subsidized housing, which is super helpful, as we know, in New York. So I want to ask about like just the culture of getting your PhD. Do you have a community that you fall back on? Is it like, are you friends with the kids sitting next to you or 
the man, guy, girl sitting next to you? So people talk a lot about the mental health of graduate students these days because, you know, it is important to have a big community and someone to fall back on. And sometimes you don't and sometimes you do. And I would say that, you know, it's super important to find that community anywhere that you can. And so for me, when I had just started my PhD, I started with Um, I think it was 12 other students. I was in a cohort of 12. So these PhD cohorts are typically very small unless they're part of an umbrella program, which is like a lot of different disciplines in one. But for neuroscience, it was just 12 of us. So we were very tight knit my first year. And then following my first year, at least in my curriculum, you find a lab your second year. And then that kind of became my family. And at least in my PhD lab, you we got paired with a postdoc who kind of was the one to take you under their wing and teach you everything that you know. So if you get really lucky, as I did, get paired with a great mentor, then that's kind of the person that you learn everything from, but also really rely on for like emotional support during like the difficult times of the PhD. Okay. Yep. Yep. Yes. Yes, definitely. I exactly. I and that was just I think what you had mentioned Matt before about learning as you teach was really important for me also as a TA because I took coursework my first year of my PhD and then I started TAing I think my third, fourth and fifth year of my PhD. I did an extra semester of teaching because I loved it so much. But you know, like when I was TAing for an intro to neuroscience class, it is introductory, but at NYU, you know, the neuroscience major is actually quite tough. You get re-exposure to all of these things that maybe I you hadn't touched in a while. And so then it kind of, if you're doing research at the time, it's like, oh, that's something that I, that I didn't think might apply. And so then you can kind of go back to your own work. And it was just, it was really nice because, you know, as I mentioned, if the students, they get the single exposure to the professor a couple times a week, you know, but if you're too shy to go to office hours, the TA is really important for undergrads. They feel a little bit more comfortable asking questions that they wouldn't otherwise to the professor. And it was really nice for me to have that experience. Her days as a PhD student were hectic, to say the least. With that being said, Tuss says you have to ask for help. I think that that was something that I didn't know how to do so well at the beginning of my PhD was how to balance and also know what my own limitations were. And so, yeah, when I train undergrads or graduate students now, I am always very firm about, you know, like set realistic expectations for yourself because I was very bad at that. So I think that was that's something that I try to pass along. What was graduation like? Graduation was super anticlimactic. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it depends. It depends. So. What happens in the PhD is that you have to schedule your PhD defense. So you're defending your research that you've done through your whole PhD. You have to schedule it in line with one of the school's graduations in the calendar year. So that's three of them, right? You have the spring and the summer and winter graduation. So typically all of the defenses happen in May, August, or December. And that's kind of the, that's the graduation. So that is really celebratory. It's It's your defense. You're defending the research that you've done for the past four or five years in front of the whole department. And then after your public talk, your committee, which you form during your PhD, consists of, depending on the school, four principal investigators or professors that are in the department that know kind of your field of research. They guide your research throughout your PhD, but they're also the ones to eventually give you your PhD. So you give your public talk and then they take you into a room and they kind of grill you about 
big picture questions. Sometimes they'll read your 100 plus page dissertation and go through things that they saw. Sometimes they don't read them. Um, that, um, that wasn't, wasn't my, my experience. experience. I, I, I got, got copies copy. of my dissertation back that had notes scribbled in them. Sometimes they, sometimes they don't read. They're very long. They're really long and you definitely need it. But then there's sort of the argument that maybe it's a little bit of a formality. That's not to say you shouldn't take it seriously. I think it's a, like it's a personal feat type thing. I always thought that once graduation day hits, you're done and you move on to the next task at hand. In Tuz's case, more research. But sometimes there's more work to be done. So the thing about research is your success is judged by the number of publications that you have. You can get straight A's in your PhD, but if you, even after graduating, have zero papers with your name on it, that's, you know, not the most successful PhD experience. And so this is a research that you do during your PhD. This is what the goal eventually is, is to submit your work to a peer-reviewed journal and then to get it published so you can listen on your CV. So if you look at a science CV, you'll see at the very top, one of the first things is peer-reviewed publications. And that's where people look to see your productivity. And if you're in research, that's what people really care about. And so... I had a couple of papers in my PhD, but I was wrapping one of my projects up, and so I needed a couple of months. So sometimes the PhD defense is not commensurate with like finishing your time in the lab. Oftentimes people will stick around for a little bit longer to wrap up their research because like if you don't have that published, then it's it's almost meaningless. So from my PhD, I had three first author papers. So you know, lab is. Exactly. So so lab work is super collaborative. There's always people that have their hands in the project and it's important that you give them credit to that. So that's to put their name on the paper. And so when I had mentioned the technician job being a really good stepping stone is if you're if you play your cards right, then you'll get onto a paper that's going to be published. And that really matters for getting into a Ph.D. program. Second name often is significant work also put in with the first author. Oftentimes these days we're seeing co-first author. These are people that contributed equally and as importantly to the paper. And then anybody basically, I mean, it's a matter of ethics too, right? If someone helps you with their project, then they should be given credit for it. And so this is also something that has to be discussed before you start working on a project is to ensure that you will get the credit that you deserve. Can we get into the specifics of what research you were doing? As much specifics as you can get into? Sure. Okay. So when I was in my PhD, my initial question was how memory consolidation occurs. And so memory consolidation is the process of how a memory becomes long-lasting. And I studied the molecular mechanisms of how this occurs. So I studied the role of new protein synthesis in this using a mouse model. And so in this mouse model, we use a modified form of like Pavlovian associative conditioning. So we all know the study of Pavlov and his dogs where a bell would ring and a dog would get food, right? And so when the food is presented, the dog salivates because he's hungry. And then the dog learns to associate the sound of the bell with the food. And so as soon as he hears the bell, then the dog starts to salivate. And this is what we call a conditioned response. And this conditioned response is a memory, a memory of the bell being a predictor of food. And so I study kind of this process in a mouse model using aversive conditioning. So here, instead of food, the mice receive a little bit of a shock after a tone is being played. And so what the mouse learns then is that the tone predicts this mild foot shock 
And then in subsequent presentations of the tone, they'll freeze a little bit because they anticipate being shocked. And so this is a really robust kind of memory that you can study. And we know the brain regions that are involved with this memory process. And so I studied that in my PhD, and I transitioned now into my postdoc by studying kind of the neural circuits that are involved with this process by using some of the imaging techniques. The imaging techniques these days are, I mean, the neuroscience is advancing like at a very, very fast rate, and it's very cool. It's a very cool time to be in neuroscience, but we have these viruses that are non-toxic, and when you put them in the brain, they will allow the neurons to flash on and off when they're active. And you can capture this activity with a fiber optic and kind of say something about how the neural dynamics associate with behavior, in this case, the conditioning that I was talking about. So I defended my PhD in September of 2015. I got married November of 2015. Uh, and then we went to Italy in December 2015 and I started my postdoc January of 2016. And for me, it was this very weird moment because, you know, I'd been working so hard to get my PhD and then I got married and they were all these really big life events, right? And, and some, you know, like a lot of these things are like checkboxes, you know, as you're growing up, it's like, well, I need to do this, I need to do this. And then, and then for me, before starting my postdoc, I was like, man, all of these things are done. Where's my life going now, you know? And um, I remember being in Italy and thinking, oh man, I only have five more days left of vacation, four days left, three days left. And then I realized that, you know, at this point in my life, just being present and in the moment and not looking too far back and not looking too far forward was really important for me. And just to kind of live and enjoy every moment and just to be present. So I think that mentality in starting my postdoc was really important for me. And what I also didn't realize was that I was starting completely new work. And I forgot how exciting that was, right? You know, near the end of your PhD, you're starting to do experiments that you kind of put off for a while or you are doing them to have appropriate controls for the papers that I talked about. And it gets kind of tedious and boring at the end. And so I think that I, that was kind of mixed into my feelings and I forgot how fun science was. Yeah, January starting my postdoc was a really fun time for me, actually. So you were pregnant with Simon Joe? Yep. Yes. Yes, it can be very scary. And, you know, like science is really big on Twitter, actually. And so there's always these Twitter threads that go on about like people that are pregnant and maternity leave and how, you know, people in science are not that well taken care of sometimes. But I would say that my experience was a very positive one just because my PI was super supportive. I know a lot of people when they get pregnant are a little bit scared or reluctant to tell their bosses. You know, of course I was a little bit nervous, but my boss was really supportive when I told him about it and like anything that I needed to be comfortable, he was all for, um, you know, like especially with the chemicals in the lab that, you know, like a pregnant woman shouldn't be around. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh, wow. What precautions did you have to take? Um, so one of the drugs that we use is a fixative for the brain that is like a carcinogen. It's para paraformaldehyde. Like 100% of pregnant women should not be using those. Chemicals. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, my lab mates were really helpful. If I ever ne needed to do something with those chemicals, they would do it for me. It's, it's unfortunate 
because I know a lot of people that have not had great experiences. My boss was really flexible with my maternity leave. You know, he kind of let me dictate the terms of that. And again, other people have not had the same experience. The maternity leave, I think, is six weeks with 50% pay. And, you know, like postdocs' salaries, it's not great. I think the NIH minimum requirement is 47000 So if you're getting paid half of that, Well, I mean, I think in general, being a woman in STEM is tough because, you know, like there are a lot, PhD programs are many, postdoc positions are many, but there's a major bottleneck when you go from a postdoc to faculty, for instance, which used to be the career trajectory that was the norm. You know, you that's what you would do. And and you would only do a postdoc for a little bit. It was intentionally, originally designed to be like a little parking space for you until you can get your tenure track faculty position. But nowadays, people are doing their postdocs for many, many years. And, you know, if your productivity is um, judged based on the number of publications, you have to be very productive during those periods, which means being in the lab a lot. And it's difficult to juggle kids. And, and it costs a lot of money. You know, and so one of the big questions in science is like, when is a good time to have kids? Nobody knows when the good time to have kids is, you know, many people have just said, just do it. There's no good time to have kids, you know. During your postdoc, you need to get papers. It's really busy, not a good time. When you're a new professor, you're trying to get tenure, not a good time. But, I mean, you just kind of have to go for it and make it work. And that is that has kind of been my experience is just to find what you love and just to continue going going for it. And as long as you still love it, just... A little bit cross your fingers that things will fall into place, but also find the right support systems in terms of your friends or, you know, the right boss and someone that supports you and not just your career, but like your life. Dr. Wynn is also an associate professor at Hunter College during the school year. She teaches behavioral pharmacology, the study of all the drugs and the influence they have on your brain and behavior. It was important to her to find a postdoc program that also allowed her to teach. I love teaching, and, and so it was important to me to get that experience. And there are a couple of NIH-sponsored fellowships for postdocs that allow you to teach and do research at the same time. So I was really gunning for one of those positions. But unfortunately, none of the research labs kind of aligned with the locations for where my husband was going to eventually be. And so this is this is kind of an internal struggle for me because that fellowship was I was like, it's perfect for me. It has everything that I want, and it gives dedicated teaching time, right? And so when I found the lab that I am now in, you know, it was also very important for me to find a lab that I was very interested in, and that was my number one. Number two, close number two was teaching, but I, when I started my postdoc in my head, I was like, you know, I have to find a way to get the teaching experience that I want. And so I would go online and I would look up all of the colleges around NYC. I tried to contact my NYU professors to see if anybody would have me. But, you know, being a postdoc and teaching at a place like NYU is, you know, usually those jobs are reserved for full professors or assistant professors. So there was no space for me there. And so then I started emailing some of the city universities and got in touch with Hunter College, the adjunct administrator. And I actually was emailing 
several months in advance, I emailed the August when I finished my PhD and nobody responded to me. And then I emailed again, I think in December, it was like, you know, just reaching back out. I'm, this is my expertise. This is, you know, I would really love a teaching position. And, and it just happened that the person was scheduling for the spring semester at the time and was able to fit me in, in this um, behavioral pharmacology class. Dr. Wynn and her family moved to Arizona, where she'll be finishing up her postdoc research remotely. This will be her third year coming up, but she told us postdoc programs on average last four to six years. Before we go, Dr. Wynn has some closing advice for you. Progress is progress. You know, it doesn't matter where you are or what you're doing as long as you're making forward progress. And I say that because, you know, when I was 18, I was like, oh, I'd never do an MD PhD because that would take so long, you know, but here I am. I finished my PhD, I think when I was 30, you know, and that was never my life plan, but I was always moving forward. And when I was in it, it didn't feel like ages. And I think that when you're in school for so long, it's you have to not think of it so much as school and just think of it as progress and moving towards your goals. And it's, it's your career at that point. You know, I was getting my PhD, I was in school, but that was my job. You know, I got paid for it. And so I just, you know, just be patient with where you're going and how you're getting there as long as you're moving towards um, that light, I guess. That wraps up part two in the Life in the Lab series. Huge thanks to Dr. Ta Wynn for sharing her wisdom throughout this experience, A Day in the Life series. If you haven't already, be sure to listen to part one in this series to experience a day in the life of a postdoc neuroscientist. So they say you can't get a job without experience, but need experience to get the job. But luckily, we have quite the experience. You can join our team and experience a day in the life of the jobs you want by applying to be a student editor. Regardless of your major or amount of experience, this is the perfect stepping stone into any internship or career. Find more info and sign up at xadiddle.com slash students. That's x-a-d-i-t-l dot com slash students. Thanks for listening. Head over to exadiddle.com. That's X-A-D-I-T-L.com. There you can find the show notes for this series and more A Day in the Life articles. And you can get to know us and our guests more by joining our communities on social media. Follow at xadiddle on Instagram and on LinkedIn by searching for Krista Bow and Matt with one T Poe. If you learned something in this episode, please take some time to help our mission by leaving a positive rating and review of the show. Each week, we bring you a new interview series with guests from different jobs and different industries. In each series, we'll live a specific day in the life, hour by hour, and experience their career journey. So don't forget to subscribe.